Today's Old Testament reading comes from Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in the Mount Zion. From this time forth and evermore. And the sermon text this evening comes from Acts chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus from Antioch a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you guys pray with me? Father, you have promised to be near to us in your word. So we ask as we sit underneath it uh, that you would be present to make yourself glorious and beautiful, to help us see you clearly, uh, and to transform us 
uh, into an image of your glory for the sake uh, of the community and the world around us. We ask you to do what only you can do and make these words change us into the image of Christ. We ask this in his holy name. Amen. Thanks for reading for us, guys. So I, uh, I follow this rock climber on Twitter. Uh, I don't need to be on Twitter anymore. Uh, I'm not really sure why I am. But if there was a reason, it might be partially related to this, this rock climber that I follow from Norway. He likes to send out these inspirational like picture quotes uh, every morning at about 6 a.m., which I can't, I'm not sure what time it is for him. Uh, but I'm, I'm usually up with, with our son feeding a bottle around then. And so I always see these kind of come across our, our, my timeline. And I don't know about you, but I, I kind of like to roll my eyes at like inspirational, like quote Twitter. Um, and, and one came across my timeline the other day. Uh, and it said this. When a man has put a limit on what he will try, he has put a limit on what he can do. Now, that's just kind of -of run-of-the-mill inspiration Twitter quote. But what caught me was who it was attributed to, Charles M. Schwab. And I was like, hey, I know that name. That's one of those investment companies that advertises at the Super Bowl. And I'm like, I don't know anything about this guy. First of all, I was wrong. That's Charles R. Schwab. (laughs) So... End of that little part of the anecdote. But Charles M. Schwab uh, was, a, was, a, was a revolutionary steel manufacturer in the early 1900s. Uh, he ran a company called Bethlehem Steel, uh, and they were just taking off. They were just starting to kind of it, it put themselves in present in the market in about 1913. And if any of you are familiar with what happened the rest of that decade, it was a very good time to be a steel manufacturer. And so Charles M. Schwab became one of the richest men in the world over the next 10 years. He, in fact, is is possibly most famous for building a house called Riverside, which is a 75-room mansion on the Upper West Side touching Central Park. And what blew my mind about it was trying to adjust that for inflation. It appears that he spent about $214 million to build this mansion which he could then never sell, because apparently it's on the wrong side of the park. Who knew? I didn't know there was a side you're supposed to be on and a side you're not. So after he builds this audacious mansion that even his friends Andrew Carnegie and all these other rich people you've heard of made fun of, uh, he couldn't sell it when the stock market crashed. Um, And in fact, by 1939, he he died in, in relative obscurity. Uh, I know that sounds like a tangent, but I I, want to follow up on what he said, both of his most famous kind of quotes when I looked up stuff about him. There was this, that when a man has put a limit on what he will try, he's put a limit on what he can do. And another thing he's famous for saying, which apparently made it into the How to Win Friends and Influence People book, that there is no limit possible to the expansion of each one of us. I think these are mantras things in the water, Uh, not just within American capitalism, but even within American Christianity. In this story that we just read, what we're going to see is that the, the Spirit works through the church, not just to bring the expansion to God's people, uh, but to bring about 
righteousness. And he doesn't just work through the gifts and the talents and the skills of God's people, but he also works through their limitations and their weaknesses. So I don't know about you, but when I hear those kind of Twitter sort of inspirational quotes, I know that there's something in me that lives like that. That every time I see an opportunity missed, every time someone calls me and I have to say, no, there's this kind of creeping understanding of guilt. If there's an unmet need, I I just kind of assume it's my responsibility to figure out how it's supposed to happen. One of the biggest accusations I feel is kind of leveled at myself, especially in the middle of the night, is that I'm just not enough for everything that is relying on me. I think you've probably felt many of these things, too. It is that heart, that feeling of being overwhelmed, overtaxed, overasked, that I think this passage really speaks into for us and in the way that the kingdom will work. So as we walk through these seven verses, we're going to see the Spirit enabling and directing and anointing people to specific roles within the church body. And in the end, we'll really see that the Spirit is the one who glorifies Father, Son, and Spirit himself through the growth and the holiness of his church. So I want to share, and I want to say those things specifically, the Spirit is the one driving the action in this text. The Spirit is the one alive and at work. We're going to see him convict the church and purify it. We're going to see it move uh, and anoint and enable, and we're going to see it multiply God's glory uh, and his people. So look with me again at at verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, So far in the book of Acts, we've begun to see these miraculous moments of huge expansion within God's people. There's the falling of the Holy Spirit on Peter. He preaches this sermon. Thousands of people all of a sudden in the streets come to know Jesus, and they they baptize them all. Uh, Then we begin to see uh, him doing works in the streets, uh, the apostles, and they're healing people, and they're arguing with the Sadducees, and people are coming to faith in Jesus. Then we see this troubling episode, right, with Ananias and Sapphira, where uh, there's this sinful entrance into the people of God. The Lord takes seriously his holiness uh, and the holiness of his church. And so there's this moment where we have to withdraw. We have to kind of establish what we are as God's people, what he expects of God's people. And then again, in that moment, the spirit again expands. There's a miraculous moment of of power and declaration and more people come to faith. One thing we're going to see throughout the whole book of Acts is that this will become a pattern. There will be expansion of God's people into new territories. There will be opportunities to learn the difficulties of being different, including new people, new gifts, new skills. It will lead to conflict, and it will lead to sin. And then there will be moments for us to be recommitted, renewed in the good news of the gospel as the people of God before we begin to see the the people expand again. So this is, I would argue, this is our second kind of picture of this pattern. There was Ananias and Sapphira, and now we have this moment where expansion has led to conflict. So you have these two groups here, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hellenists are are a group of of, of Greek uh, believers, people who may or may not have been Jewish in the past, but culturally are Greek individuals. 
And now that Paul has been preaching in the streets, there are some of these people who were never Jewish to begin with, who were Gentiles, uh, who were Greek. And there were some people who were Jews, but were Greek kind of in their language and the way that they speak. And these people began to gather separately. They speak different languages. They might have heard the word of God in different moments and in different locations. And as you have felt before, as comfort and knowledge and relationships begin to build in these two groups of people, they begin to argue. They begin to kind of come to one another and say, hey, I'm not sure how all the things are working out here. The particular point that leads to conflict is this complaint about the widows. So the widows are obviously a group of people that the Lord has cared deeply about. If you ever get the opportunity, there's a recording way back in the past of Katie Smith who's asking me not to say this, but she did a great teaching on uh, the way that the church cares for the widows and the orphans and the aliens in our community. And that's been a foundational text to the way that I have thought about uh, what it looks to care for the last, the least, and the lost. So here we have this accusation that God's people, the apostles, this growing church, is, is out of line, that it's out of step, that it's, it's distributing the resources that God has given them inappropriately, that there are some widows and some in need who are being fed, but there are others who are in need who are going hungry. They're being neglected. And if you listen to what Ben read a moment ago, all these prophecies in the Old Testament by people like Micah seem to picture the kingdom of God as it comes, and this kingdom people to be a place where the lame walk and the hungry are fed, and those who have been forgotten are made new and brought to the forefront. So this is a pretty stark accusation about this new movement of Christianity. So I guess the question for me then rises, is this sort of an oops Or is this more of a sin issue? And I think we have to look pretty deeply to see. Obviously, if you guys have done any event organization, I know some of you have planned weddings. Uh, I know many of you work in event planning. It takes a lot of work. It takes a, a, a ton of resources and distribute them evenly to a bunch of people, especially people in need. Uh, we have members in our church that have worked for Samaritan's Purse, and I've gotten to hear opportunities to hear stories of them about coordinating relief efforts in places like Greece and Iraq, and the unbelievable amount of red tape and complication about getting the food that people need to the people who need it would stun you. It takes hundreds of hours of work, tons of people coordinating. It takes all sorts of logistics. This is a hard thing to do. So is it possible that what's going on here is just kind of an oops? Oh, we knew we should be doing a better job of that. Thanks for raising the problem. Let's figure it out. Some commentators would say yes. There's a reason I'm a bit hesitant. The reason I'm a bit hesitant is because this conflict between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers will be a featured theme of the next 10 chapters of the book of Acts. We will spend so much time trying to figure out how the apostles and the church are supposed to care for these groups of people with different interests and different culture and different language and different needs. It will be a feature of the book of Galatians that Paul will write. It will be a feature of the book of Romans. And in fact, if you'll read Jesus' discussion with the seven churches in Revelation, you will see mention of it again there. The unity of his people across ethnic lines, across need lines, is one of the most essential parts of being his faithful church. So while this is a new movement, and I I have a bit of compassion for how complicated it would be to to share all these resources, I think we're looking at something that at least has some aspects of, of discriminatory sin. 
Another thing that gives me confidence of that comes in the, in the next few verses. So let me read verses 2 through 6 to you. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the first thing that gives me confidence that, that this is actually a deeper problem than we aren't doing something that we forgot about is the quickness and the long-reachingness of the way that the apostles respond. It doesn't say, oh, the apostles were scattered out, healing people in the streets and, and teaching the Bible. And when they went and said that this complaint had arisen, they weren't like, oh, yeah, that's a problem. Someone go deal with that for us. The 12 gather together. They call the entirety of the disciples, the whole, as far as we can tell, the whole of the body of the church that's present in this area, and they begin to have a family conversation about how to do these things better. It's a big deal. So I don't know how what the apostles collectively say lands on your ears, but when I hear it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables, it's hard for me to not hear that as haughty, high-minded, a little dismissive. In fact, I think I've been to uh, Christian teaching opportunities or, or youth groups or, or college ministry settings where this has been kind of thrown out there as like the holy and highest calling is to preach the word of God. And I think that's actually done a lot of damage to, to me in my spiritual History, and I'm sure it has done some to you. So I, I want to take a little bit of a closer look. I want to try to establish whether the apostles are, are saying this out of a, a superiority, because I think it really matters, or if, if this is actually maybe something in the tone of the translation, something in the tone of the writing that makes it sound a little more superior than it, it actually is. So let's take a, a closer look. The first thing I think is really important for us to dive into is the fact that Acts 1 and 2 start to establish this idea of the apostles. There were these individuals, the disciples, who, who walked with Jesus. Upon his death, they gathered together in the room. Jesus comes and meets with them. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, we see at Jesus' ascension, the apostles are there. Uh, they watch him rise. They receive this, this explanation of him about the kingdom work that they're about to do. They decide they need to replace Judas. They, they cast lots. Um, they, they introduce a guy named Matthias. Uh, in the New Testament, we're going to see a lot of different roles laid out. And in fact, this passage is famous, arguably, to be the first description we have of deacons, even though the word is not described here. But another word that's probably just as important to understanding this passage is apostle. So, at Grace Fellowship, we have some offices here. We have the office of pastor, which is a staff elder. We have the office of elder, which is a group of individuals that we believe are ordained into the ministry to care for our church. 
We have lay elders as well as Joel, who is a staff elder, a pastor. We also have deacons that we commission into the service of the church for particular tasks. Something that we do not have here at Grace Fellowship is the office of apostle. So one of the things that I think I did wrong often in reading this passage is, oh, he's talking about everyone who preaches the word. Everyone who preaches the word is an apostle, and therefore they don't need to distract themselves with this serving of tables and serving of the last, the least, and they're lost. Great. Well, that's wonderful because I'm going to school to preach, so it's good to know I don't have to do any of this administrative helping hurting people stuff. That would be the wrong way to read this passage. And it would be wrong, at least in part, because I'm not an apostle. This is a particular moment. So there are some other people in the New Testament called apostles. We'll see Paul, we'll see James, we'll see Barnabas. This is a title given to certain people in this moment in church history, where there's this drastic expansion of the kingdom, this reception of Jesus' ministry, often in body. Every one of them sees the resurrected Jesus, whether in the flesh or in a, a vision. These are individuals who are called, according to that purpose, to do a unique task a task of starting God's church. So these are the apostles. They, they are doing these miraculous visions and miraculous works, and they're preaching in the streets. There's a particular task in this moment that is given to the apostles and the apostles alone. So they're different than our spiritual leaders today. The second thing that makes me take pause at seeing this is them posturing over and above the people is what we mentioned earlier, that there's this immediate response. If they were so self-important to think this was beneath them, it seems unlikely that they would gather the entirety of the Christian body to have a, a conversation. Um, it seems like they take this matter very seriously. So if what they're saying is, this isn't really that important to us, can't you let us get back to doing the important stuff? Uh, I have a hard time imagining that would be worth gathering the full number of the disciples and having this long meeting about who's going to take care of it. I think they value this. A third thing that I notice that, that stands out to me is, is a lack of defensiveness. Uh, they don't kind of come out and say, hey, uh, why are you accusing us? Why are you bringing this to us? Why, we are doing all these kind of amazing things for God. Leave us alone. There's no defensiveness. I think another thing that stands out that I, I want to spend a little time on is the fact that they says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, I think in my heart, it's easy to interpret this as these are the more important tasks. These are the influential, powerful, public ways of serving God's church. This is the most important thing to do. But I think there's another way to read this, and I think it's the correct way, which is we are apostles appointed and anointed by Jesus to do a specific thing, to pray and to preach the word of God. This is not the most important thing to do. This is our thing to do. This is our thing to do. The reason I can be so confident of this is that the overwhelming majority of these people were in a room with Jesus a few hours before he died, where the king of kings himself knelt at their feet and washed them. 
I think in a moment like that where you see God of the universe on his knees at your feet creates a different understanding of what it means to lead God's people. It's hard for me to imagine the people who experience God himself washing their feet, thinking serving tables is beneath them, below them, that they're too important for that. No. Not if Jesus is not. Remember when James and John and their mother are arguing about who's going to sit at the right hand of Jesus, and Jesus chastises them immediately. He says it's the last that will be first in the kingdom of God the lowest. These men remember those words. I think maybe the most important thing to remember is that we live in a culture that is oversaturated with spiritual celebrities, preachers and teachers who have incredible amounts of money, incredible amounts of social capital, incredible amounts of respect. And often, frankly, they throw that around willy-nilly to, to kind of no consequence. But the end of these people's stories are not mansions in Texas, mansions in the mountains of of West Virginia. They're not going to be celebrated and lauded. There's not going to be retirement ceremonies where everyone talks about their powerful and amazing ministry for God. They will die. Each and every one of them, except John, violently for the sake of the gospel. They, as apostles are not choosing the most incredibly praiseable path. They're picking up the cross that Jesus has put before them. And I would argue they know where it leads. So, there's a reason that I read this differently than, ah, we're so important, we don't have time for that. And it's because of where they've been and where they're going. In verse 5, I think there's another notable thing. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Again, none of the people there saw this as the apostles taking the easy way out. They saw this as a pleasing, yes, you're right. These leaders, we need to appoint someone to take care of this thing. So then they they reach out, they please the whole gathering, and they choose Stephen and Philip and this group of men. And then they lay hands on them and pray for them. Now, there's a, there's a long legacy in the Bible of this laying on of hands and prayer and the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want to go into it in a ton of detail, but when Moses needs other people uh, to help govern the people, they, they call out a group of men to be elders. They lay hands on them. The Holy Spirit falls upon them and gives them wisdom. We have examples like, like David's anointing at the hands of Samuel, where he lays hands on him and he pours oil on his head and he prays for them. This is a long-term way that God's people have anointed individuals to a particular act of service. So that may sound a little confusing to you, but this is just God's people's way of marking a particular calling and a particular responsibility for a particular group of people. So that may just sound like a story. You know, like, John, that wasn't even all that interesting, but you just told me what happened. And I... I understand that. I think a lot of Acts can be a little difficult to preach because it sounds like just descriptions of something that happened. But I want to say that there are a few elements from from this story in particular 
The way that the Spirit convicts, the way that the Spirit himself moves to enable, anoint, and identify the gifts and skills of people, and the way that the Spirit then follows that up by continuing to expand God's kingdom, like it says in verse 7, that will do something for us in our hearts if we will take a moment and listen carefully. So these are, these are the three things that I, I believe is for our souls, for our hearts, and for the glory of Jesus from this passage. First is this. The Spirit's fruitfulness, the Spirit's power, it never comes apart from the Spirit's conviction and the Spirit's sanctification. There have been some famous podcasts over the past couple years about the ways that spiritual leaders have been not held responsible for their own sin and failures because of the great fruit that their ministries were producing. I think that's an inherent misreading of this passage. The Spirit's fruitfulness. When the Spirit has touched something, when the Spirit gives it power, we always seem to recognize that. Oh, people are coming. Oh, miracles are happening. Oh, there's expansion and movement. Everyone's excited about this thing the Spirit's doing. And I'm saying, that when it is the Spirit moving in fruitfulness, that does not come apart from his conviction of God's people and his purification of God's people. See, it is the Spirit here that raises the moment. It is the Spirit here alive in God's people that says, hey, hold on. You're telling me about this Jesus who's this representative of of the God of Jacob, and I know something about the God of Jacob. I know that in in the God of Jacob's eyes, there, there would not be widows going hungry. How can you stand there and heal people and preach and say you're, you're working on the behalf of this God when these people are going hungry? So the Spirit's fruitfulness doesn't come without the Spirit's conviction and sanctification. What I think is really important for a group of us in here to hear in that is that that means the Spirit's fruitfulness and the Spirit's conviction and call to repentance are actually not in conflict. That means that taking the time to repent, to grow, to wait, to encounter God in his word, to develop, those aren't wasted times. If fruitfulness is untethered to holiness, then it's going to collapse altogether. Whether that's because the moment is is not actually given by the Spirit, or whether that's just that the leader who's actually carrying everything will eventually stumble and fall. Expansion, or sorry, even at the mountaintop of kingdom expansion, we we have the apostles of Jesus, and, and he's giving power to all their movements. Even at this moment, attentiveness to God's character and God's call is allowed to disrupt the momentum. We stop what we do, we get together, and we talk about how this group of people can follow the Lord in truth. I pray that as we are individuals and as we grow at a church at Grace Fellowship, we don't get so convinced and so moved by the obvious fruitfulness of our individual or collective ministries that we don't have time to hear the voices of those who are unheard and to ask ourselves, is the character of God's kingdom being represented in the things that we're doing. Because that's where the voice of the Spirit will be found. So, fruitfulness only comes with conviction and sanctification from the Spirit. The second thing I think we see in this, it's good for us to hear. The Spirit 
has called each disciple to be his people. And that means you. That means you're here. And I don't mean here in the sense of grace fellowship, as if we're the only church where God is moving or working. I don't, I don't mean this particular pew. Though if you wanted to be a part of our body and serve and bring your gifts here, we would be richer for it. But I'm saying you are here, covered in the blood of Jesus, invited to be part of God's people because you are you. Because you have something we need. There are needs for many things beyond apostles. Notice they didn't come in and say, okay, well, we need like four more Peters. So uh, let's cast lots again. Twelve apostles, well, clearly we need like 20 because there's all these tables to be served. They don't say that. In fact, if, if there were only more apostles and no one to serve the tables of the widows, I'm telling you the church would wither and die because the Spirit would not be alive and at work in a place where that wasn't happening. In the Spirit, in your gifts, in your personalities, in your strengths, you have what we need. Let me tell you a way that this has worked negatively in my past and, and positively, hopefully, in my future. I, um, I was part of a, a college ministry that I, I loved, uh, I was glad to be a part of. The, uh, the leader of that college ministry is a man who I have great respect for, memories of, but could not be more different than me in personality. Uh, he was uh, emotive, uh, on demand. Uh, he was poetic. He was tender. Uh, he was gentle. Um, he was celebrated as more of a, a musician poet than, than kind of a, a whatever brusque and abrupt kind of personality I have. I don't know. I'm sorry. And I felt, I don't believe this is something he or the ministry put on me, but I felt this implicit pressure to grow into his image, to become more and more and more like him. And there are some ways that I think that was accurate. He was showing me righteousness. He was showing me obedience. There were ways that he was conforming me into the image of Christ that were holy and good. But there were ways that I was seeking to try to conform into the image of Chris that were negative and not making the most of the gifts that the Lord has given me. What I want you guys to hear in that is that Joel and I and Katie and Paige, we have specific jobs here. Our elders have specific jobs here. But our goal is not to reproduce ourselves over and over and over and over again. We need people to preach. We need people to lead worship. But we need you to do the things that the Lord brought you here to do. We don't need 147 Joels. The church wouldn't work. We need you as you come and as you are. It is that that the Spirit brought you here for and that that we need. So you're here for a reason and in the Spirit you have what you need. The third thing that I think I see in this passage that's so important, and it comes back to where we started. The Spirit has given us limitations just as he has given us gifts. Limits. Something Joel said to me, uh, both in private and in public, that has meant a lot to me. Uh, I don't know if he stole it. He may or may not listen to this later. I'll give him credit. 
But something he has said to me repeatedly is that faithfulness in, in one arena, faithfulness in one area of our lives does not require unfaithfulness anywhere else. The Lord Jesus has made us a path of obedience available for him. And that means that the things he has called us to will never demand us to engage in sinfulness and in attentiveness and failure in other avenues that he has called us to. We are mortal. We experience time. We get sick. We can only be in one place at a time. We are uniquely good at some things, and some things are harder for us than for others. But if this text tells us anything, it's that our limitations are good. And they're good for three reasons. They're good, A, for everyone else's gifts. All right? There's a lot to be done here. There are good works that the Lord Jesus has pulled for you, Lindsay Collins. And if I'm here trying to do the things in this body that the Lord has prepared for Lindsay to walk into, then I'm doing someone else's job, and more importantly, I'm not even doing mine. I am stepping into the good works that the Lord Jesus has prepared for someone else. We need Lindsay to be Lindsay, and we need John to do John's stuff. Your limitations, your limits, the reasons you have to say no, the skills that you don't have, the places where you feel like you're just not quite enough, those are openings. They're openings for other people to do and be the things that the Lord Jesus has called them to do and be. Quash the guilt. Say, man, I really wish I had time to take dinner to them on Saturday, but I don't. I should text so-and-so. Maybe they can take dinner because I don't have the availability or the flexibility. Do it. You don't have to do everything because it's someone else's job here. So our gifts are good for each other's gifts. And our limitations, sorry, are good for each other's gifts. What else are our limitations good for? The second thing they're good for is for God's glory alone. We talk about it all the time here at Grace. He is building his church. You're not here to build your church. I'm not here to build my church. Joel and our elders aren't here to build their church. He is building his church. So when we are limited, when we can't be everywhere at once, when we can't build every relationship we want to build, when we can't share the gospel with every person we want to share the gospel for with and to. That is for God's glory, because when those moments come around, it won't be confused. We won't say, oh, you know, man, Ethan is just so amazing. That's why all these things happened. Ethan can just be everywhere at once. No, Ethan can't be, but God can, and he is, and he does. It's good for God's glory that we can't do all the things that the kingdom needs and asks of us, because we will see him at work. You know what this means? This means when you're a friend and you're on a walk and they just say something like, you know, I just don't know how you do it all. Maybe that's more of a warning than a compliment. Maybe we're doing too much of other people's work. I don't know, but I feel that. The third thing. Our limits are good for our hearts. 
There's a passage in a book called Paralandra that C.S. Lewis wrote, and I won't bore you with all the details. But he washes up on the shore of this, and it's not. It's a wonderful book. You should read it. Uh, he washes up on shore, the main character, and he, and, he, and he finds all this delicious fruit, and he picks one because he's starving, and he eats it, and it's the most delicious fruit you can ever imagine. He's instantly full. He's instantly sated. It's amazing. And he reaches up, and he picks another fruit. And there's another character there who, who kind of doesn't understand sinfulness and doesn't understand human people, and they say, why did you pick another fruit? You're not hungry anymore. And he says, I don't know, it, it, it tasted so good. And he takes a bite and it's not as good. It's not as good. Why is that? Because food is to fill us. It is delicious. It is satisfying. But part of what makes food so important is that it fills our needs. And if we're chasing that taste and that pleasure and that satisfaction, it actually won't ever be as good as when we were hungry. Our limits are good for our hearts because being in need is where you get God's goodness and glory and where you feel it most. When you can't do all the things, that's where you will see the activity and the flourishing of God. When you've organized your schedules and controlled all the things to make everything happen and you're wondering, what has God been doing around here? Well, maybe it's because you've kind of organized all the need out of your life. But when you are in need, you will find his sweetness and his mercy. And it only tastes as delicious as it does because you need it. Your limits, the things that you can't do, those are good for your soul. Because God's power, God's capacity, and God's strength is most wonderful when we have reached our limits. When we know that something is beyond us. This is also good for us. Because something that is not done isn't immediately your problem. There are a lot of things that need to happen in this world to give glory to Jesus. You can do the things that the Lord has given you a particular skill set, a particular gifting, a particular exposure. The people that God has called you to care for in your home group, they might not have the most extravagant needs in the world. They don't have to compete with the cancer society on Twitter and the most recent thing that's happening in Ukraine and the most heart-wrenching and tragic stories. They don't actually have to. They have you in your moment and your place. And it's not unfaithful to sit with someone in your home group who is sad, even though there are all these important things out there in the world that God's people have an opportunity to act on. You don't have to meet every need. You're here to meet the ones that God has placed you here for. So that anxiety about not being able to do everything and, and then it, it kind of crushing you into being able to do nothing, we have to turn that on its head. We can trust the Lord with his world. We can. And because it's not all on us, now we can do the things that the Lord has given us an opportunity to do. Now we can use our gifts freely, boldly, here without fear that we're failing everyone around us just because we can't do it all. We can do it here and now because the Lord will make it work. Those things, amongst others, bring us to this table together. Would you pray with me?